Dr. Nancy Scanlon was born in Maine, but spent her childhood constantly moving both around the United States and overseas, following her father's career in the United States Navy. She got her DVM from the University of California, Davis in 1970. After graduation, she worked in various private practices and taught in veterinary technician programs. Her path to integrated medicine started with an interest in vitamins and supplements. She was certified in acupuncture by IVIS in 1989 and also has training in chiropractic, Chinese and Western herbal medicine, and homotoxicology. She spent nearly 20 years as an integrated practitioner in a seven-person small animal practice in the Los Angeles area. She has also consulted for supplement and herbal companies. She is the author of a textbook for veterinary technicians and nurses and has lectured both nationally and internationally. She has also served as the executive director of both the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association and the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Foundation. She is currently the student services director for CIVT. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Scanlon as we discuss her childhood travels, her veterinary school and practice experience, serving as an executive director, and how she now spends her time living in a remote cabin in Mount Shasta, California, while working for CIVT. Dr. Scanlon, thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure. So where were you born? I was born in Kittery, Maine, but I only spent two weeks there. <laughs> where did you go after? Uh, went down to Panama and then over to California. Uh, my father was in the Navy, so I have been all over the place. Wow. So what other places have you lived? Uh, well, besides California, we mostly went back and forth between the East Coast and California. Uh, so I've also lived in um, Virginia, in uh, Florida, um, uh, West Virginia. Um, let's see. Uh, that's East in California. And then I've also lived in Oregon, uh, in South Dakota. Um, and I have visited. Oh, and I also lived in Japan for four years. That was oh, what the, took you there. My father. <laughs> uh, All so right, he, so still the Navy. Yes, right. He was stationed there. And that what was, did he do for the Navy? Um, <laughs> he started in submarines, and then after you reach a certain range, uh, age, then you have to, um, you know, they only let young people in submarines. So then he went to uh, destroyers, and then he retired to Chula Vista in Southern California. Wow. What were you going to say about Japan? I interrupted you. Best experience of my life. Um, you know, happy memories. Um, it was great. We lived off the base in Kamakura, and Kamakura is where the um, the big Buddha is, and it's also where the largest Shinto shrine is. And my school bus stop was right at the Shinto shrine, Hachiman shrine. That must have been amazing. It it was totally amazing. Every time we had a vacation, we went and visited another famous shrine. Uh, so we got to see all up and down the uh, main island of Japan. Wow. So how old were you then? Uh, when I went over, I was um, 12 and came back at the age of 16. So perfect age. Oh, that is that is great. Wow. Incredible. So at what point did you decide you want to be a veterinarian? Uh, since I was a, a little girl, 
uh, you know, when I, <laughs> I very first wanted to be a ballerina and uh, never, never happened. Um, one of the world's most incoordinated people out there. So, um, uh, you know, when I realized this, um, I always liked animals. I'm the kind of people that, you know, uh, they always came up to me. If we would visit a house, the people would say, oh, our cat is hiding. Uh, she doesn't like strangers and she'd come out and sit in my lap, you know, things like that. So it was kind of natural from there. So you came back stateside when you were high school age? Correct. Mm -hmm. All right. And then um, UC Davis for undergrad? Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Undergrad and grad and uh, vet school. Yep. What did What did you study in undergrad? Um, uh, basically, at the time that I was there, they said, if you were a woman, you better just cram everything into your first two years um, because that at the time that was your best chance of being able to get in uh so it was it was heavy sciences so you know um uh zoology uh biology um uh math i still to this day do not understand why they uh why we had to take calculus but math up through calculus um uh, I did uh, some interesting, I took several psychology courses because I, I really enjoyed that. And some of that was also gave me some insight into animals too, the, you know, some of the things that um, we taught. So that was fun. Isn't it a shame we don't have more time to explore those sorts of things oh, before vet school? Yes, absolutely. And I, I've been to Columbia twice. I um, went down and, and, um, uh, gave a couple of presentations down there. And in Columbia, basically, um, uh, m most people go to college and they go there and they, they explore something they're really interested in that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what they want to do. So they, they get a bachelor's degree in something. And then after that, then they get their degree in you know, if they need a degree in, in whatever else they want to do. And I thought that would be so cool if we did that here. Yeah, you know, I think like my older siblings are, are kind of around your age and you know that was the time when people got a liberal arts degree. Yeah. And then and then graduated and then were trained in a job. You know, you yeah. were trainable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that it would make you a broader thinker and I'm all, I'm all for that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, since, you know, I've taken all kinds of little things that have nothing to do with veterinary medicine or ver or a little teeny bit. Um because of that, um, um, you know, I used to go to uh, little short courses in summer um, and um, uh, uh, local uh, – it was for college uh, credit. You could take a course like uh, um, uh, Death Valley, and uh, that was given over a Thanksgiving vacation. So it was four days in and around Death Valley, and I learned some things that I had just no – idea uh, about, uh, like Joshua trees high, high on mountains. That's part of Death Valley too, as well as the desert. And that's, we just don't have enough of that. Yeah. I we just don't have enough of that. Mm -hmm. So w at that time, your vet school application, were they discouraging to you as a woman or how did that work? Yeah, they were a little bit. Um, uh, you know, that's it, it, uh, it'll be very hard work. Um, uh, we want to make sure that you're not going to just uh, drop everything and in, in after a few years and go off and have kids. Um, uh, they, um, 
you know, we, we know you love animals. There's other things you could do, you know, that kind of thing. And some of it, um, uh, I think they were, they, they push a little just to make absolutely sure that you're, you know, that you were focused on this. Uh, and, and that part, um, that worked. <laughs> um, uh, but I had been focused on it ever since, you know, I decided. So, uh, eight years old is about the time I think I, I can remember that I really knew that that's what I wanted to do. So, um, uh, you know, I got in, so I must have uh, <laughs> had convinced them pretty well. It was on the flip side. Um, after I got out, it was actually more discouragement there at the at the beginning um, because it was uh, it was difficult to get a job. I was the only woman in a vet in a three county area. I stopped checking after that, uh, and only one veterinarian was willing to hire me. Um, another uh, vet on my interview, he said, why are you here asking for a job when you should be home having children? Uh, that one was the most insulting of, <laughs> of the interviews. Uh, um, and then once I was a vet, um, people weren't real sure about me. And I have people coming in, I would say, Hi, I'm Dr. Scanlon. I wore my lab coat and it had my name on it. And I always had a stethoscope around my neck so they could really see. And so I'd say, hi, I'm Dr. Scanlon. And they'd say, hi, where's the doctor? You know? Oh, jeez. Yes. But that How many women me. were in your class? There were 10 out of 80. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, oh, well, we should put some perspective on this. That When you graduated in 1970, yeah? That's correct. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, but you said, you, I interrupted you, you said you, that changed pretty quickly. So tell me about that. Uh, so um, uh, it, the, occasionally at the beginning, I would hear things like, uh, oh, the other thing for everybody to know is also I, um, I looked like I was maybe in high school or possibly junior high at the time that I graduated. So that didn't help either. Um, uh, so I heard one time the, uh, someone out in the lobby saying, um, is that woman still here? And my receptionist saying, yes, and she's a very good vet too. And she, and the woman said, my husband won't let me see a woman. Um, they just don't have, uh, you know, what it takes. And she left. Um, but as time went on, I, um, I would have these old guys that would come in and tell me, you know, when I found out that, uh, that you were here and they were, in, and you know, the other vet was going to only do horses and you, you were here, I thought, uh, you know, what has he done to us? But I have to admit that, uh, you're all right, you know? So, so the word kind of spread. That's incredible. So mm-hmm. I, I want to back up for one second, just to ask you, um, I have the pleasure of knowing, I think three, members of the Ohio State class of 1970, mm. and they all talked about kind of how it was a watershed time. Oh, yeah. Just with, with veterinarians coming back from Viet, or what it would be veterinary students have been, like one gentleman in particular was a, was a Green Beret in Vietnam and mm-hmm. came back and went to vet school. And just this idea that um, they didn't take any static from anybody, you know, that the professors were used to running over students and that absolutely that was a time when that just didn't happen anymore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so what sort of practice did you go into then uh well like i said it was the only job i could get so it was a um uh it was a mixed practice um horses basically horses dogs and cats but i 
um, he was doing half and half. And so he hired me on to be the small animal vet. Uh, but I also, this is when there were no emergency clinics. So we alternated weekends um, as far as taking emergency calls and or, or weeks. Uh, and so uh, on the weekends, I went out and also on emergency did um, horses, cattle, and sheep were the, and goats. Um, and the other thing is, as far as he was concerned, we took everything that came through the door. And I didn't mind uh, I kind of liked rabbits and chickens were okay, um, but I am not real fond of monkeys. Um, and uh, uh, that was um, a guy brought in a full, uh, a full-grown uh, spider monkey, so I could take out his canine teeth. And th- there was no way no uh, that anybody could hold that monkey to that I could give him an IV to you know uh, start the anesthesia process. So the owner was holding the monkey with his arms behind his back. And these guys look little, but they're really strong. So the guy was trembling as I'm putting a mask on. I was masking him down. And um, and I was just really hoping that he did not let go, you know, because uh, that monkey was looking daggers at me. I think I would have been badly bitten if, you know, if, uh, if that hadn't happened. But it worked. So I got some... Uh, uh, a little bit of exotic experience uh, with along with everything else. That's a, that's amazing. That you, you that school didn't prepare you for that. Not at all. <laughs> no, our our we um, Murray Fowler, who kind of started exotic animal medicine, um, was was there in in vet school, but we mostly watched him. Uh, and I remember my my. Um, I had two experiences with the big cats with him. One was a tiger, and it was a full-grown Bengal tiger, huge. And they had him with this huge collar on and a big chain, and he was chained to uh, a link that they normally tied bulls to. And we stayed completely across the room, and and he said, don't come any closer, stay over there by that wall, you know, and then we watched him. He darted him and then got him down. Um, And then the other one was cheetahs. And the cheetahs are great. They are like big dogs. And they, um, so the cheetahs came in and they just put them in a large dog uh, uh, cage, a a regular old stainless steel large dog cage. And when you came in, they chirp at us, chirp, you know, so you'd hear this little chirp and it would be this big old cheetah you know, one of the big old cheetahs in the cage. But um, so, so those guys were cool. They were like giant cats. Um, uh, they, they didn't tell us not to pet them. So I could feel their, their spots feel like cat fur and the rest of them feels like dog fur. I was so impressed by that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, so, so we treated the cheetahs like a giant cat and we treated the tiger like we send those to UC Davis, you know, and that was my, my main uh, experience with the big cats. But um, yeah, we had essentially no, no um, experience at all with, with zoo animals. 
The, being a student, Murray Fowler's must have been great, though. I mean, he's oh, a legend. Yes, yes, yeah. He was fantastic. He was the nicest person. Um, he was great, and he was. It was very helpful to us as students. You know, now when you do, you remember this, and and always, you know, be da da da. Um, and and also just general um, uh, veterinary medicine uh, things too. Um, he was he was brilliant, uh, uh, but uh, he. You know, he would help us with anything and very down home. He was not, um, we had some, uh, professors who were kind of prima donnas, but never, you know, and it, he said the way he got into that was that when he joined uh, the faculty, he was low man on the totem pole. And so he had to find something that he could do that he, you know, that the others couldn't in order that was the only way he could make his his mark, uh, and so nobody was doing exotics, and that's kind of how he got into it. And he, you know, and he was good at it, and he liked it too, which was good. But that's oh, yeah. how, yeah, the politics. Incredible. So uh, <laughs> now you're pra- when you're getting out of school, are you practicing in California? Yes, um, I practiced in Sacramento, uh, which was nice because it was close enough <laughs> to UC Davis that I could try to uh, refer people there if I was over my head. Um, but the, uh, a lot of people didn't want to go. Um, they knew it was more expensive. Uh, and they would say, you can do this. I know you can do this, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and so, um, you know, so I read the books and called up people and so on. And if I had no clue and you know, did what I could. So at, at what point did you become interested in uh, holistic medicine? Well, I I actually started um, as a senior, um, uh, only I thought at the time it was just that I was more interested in supplements than anybody else, um, vitamin and mineral and other supplements. Yeah. And I had read a book, a whole book about vitamin E for humans and medically, and especially uh, for heart patients, but they also talked about um, arthritis and some other things. And as a senior, one of the patients that came in was a boxer that had been on heart medication for a year and was just starting to decompensate. But at the time, we only had two um, two heart medications. One was um, digoxin and the other one was Lasix and that was it. Uh, and so um, uh, he didn't want to increase either one uh, because it was she was right at the right dose and in an increase in either one could have been a little bit toxic. So I said, I just read this book about vitamin E. And he fortunately was very open-minded. So we tried it out and I was not really... Um, it didn't really sink in and there wasn't that much written about uh, interaction of vitamin E and digoxin. And we uh, put her right into um, uh, digoxin toxicity in 24 hours. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got to see, first of all, you really need to know something about this stuff. You know, I mean, it's not, uh, everybody thought it would be harmless. I took her, we took her to the cardiology department. They, uh, they verified that it was uh, uh, digitalis toxicity. Um, and I said, well, you know, we gave vitamin E. And they said, well, you might have just given her extra water, you know, for all the effect that would have. But I don't understand this, you know. And um, uh, the resident said, this is fantastic. We need to write this up. But we don't want to put it anywhere famous. Um, uh, maybe Norden News, which was a little newsletter of a drug company at, at the time. It never did get published. Um, but 
all all in that little ball, I got to see, yes, vitamin E can affect the heart. Um, yes, you can have these interactions. And yes, you can have people that there's nothing that you can do to convince them that it's doing anything that you know that it is doing. Um, so that was what got me started. And I was the local big user of um, vitamin E and selenium uh, initially. And then I got into vitamin C. And then that spread me to the other vitamins and some um, mineral complexes and then things like CoQ10 and so on. And that that was my very first part of holistic medicine. And then the second thing was um, two years after I got out of vet school, Nixon came back to China with all these movies of people that were having surgery with only acupuncture and nothing else. Uh, uh, No, you know, there were no painkillers. That's what they were given. Uh, And uh, even though even today, you can read things about, about no, 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 they did regular surgery and they had, you, you know, uh, gas anesthesia and so on, and they only used it for pain killing or whatever. I saw, they showed these people being, um, uh, uh, it was, they did, had um, electroacupuncture on their feet for a half hour, and then they would do surgery. And I'm sure most of the people didn't see this because they showed this at vet school. And I mean, this was a, these were medical films and you would not really want the public to, um, uh, to be part of, uh, you know, to be looking at those films, uh, uh, <laughs> because they're, you know, it's blood, it's surgery, but you could tell if you were a medical type person, what was going on. And that got me interested in acupuncture. And then, uh, so you did IVIS at one point, yes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Went through IVIS. And then as part of that, you know, they said, well, um, uh, you know, it's a system and you really need to know about Chinese herbs too. But IVIS at the time wasn't teach. Nobody was teaching, uh, uh, Chinese herbs except for human, um, uh, uh, colleges. Yeah. So what I did instead is, um, there was an herb company, um, uh, that they gave short courses, like three-day weekend courses and so on in, in various aspects of Chinese herbal formulas. So that's where I got um, most of my Chinese herb training. So at what point did you end up down in uh, at Sherman Oaks then? Uh, so let's see. Um, I Sherman Oaks was in... That was after I came back from, uh, so I went Northern California, Southern California, uh, South Dakota, and then back to Southern California. And that was when I got to Sherman Oaks. What took you to South Dakota? Um, so I had, um, I, I got kind of burned out on, on, um, uh, on veterinary medicine. Um, you know, back in those days, like I said, there was no, there was no, um, uh, emergency clinic, um, I, the vet took, a, you know, full advantage of me when he was supposed to be on call, then they would end up calling me because he would go take his son to a ball game and be it. There were no cell phones, you know, he would not be available. He did that regularly. So there, you know, so little things like that. So I bought my own practice, but I, I, I was a solo practitioner. There was nobody close by. There were, um, uh, so there were, you know, there was no no relief. I I, I was my emergency vet and uh, that kind of thing. So I, I anyway, I started teaching on the side, 
And then I went, I sold my practice and went into full-time teaching. Um, uh, and a job opened up in Southern California. And then there was, um, uh, that program got, and seven others in the district got closed because of political things. And they laid off half the teachers in the, in the county. Uh, and I was one of them. So I got a job in South Dakota. Um, uh, and uh, I was there for four years. And that was a private college. And then they made some bad business decisions. And um, uh, every, everything froze as far as money went. Uh, and they all most of the uh, teachers left. And, and so I came back to California. Uh, that school did get back on its feet. Um, uh, so if I had waited forever, <laughs> you know, I could have still been there. But but in South Dakota, it gets to 30 below. Um, and uh, every winter, it's not a sometime thing. That's just, that's what happens every winter. And then I got caught in a blizzard one time. And, you know, it's just, so I kind of miss California came back to uh, Southern California, and um, uh, that's when I uh, uh, started. I, I had acupuncture training towards the end of the South Dakota thing. Uh, that was the IVIS, and came back in and started doing um, some acupuncture along with being in practice, um, uh, and then went over to, um, uh, to Sherman Oaks as an uh, independent contractor. And that was the best thing for me that I could have ever done because as an independent contractor, I didn't have to worry about the overhead and the hiring and the firing and so on. I just got to do my thing and pay them a percentage for, um, you know, for the, uh, for the support and all that kind of stuff. It was great. Uh, and that, and that's how I, uh, that was, I was there for almost 17 years. That's a good run. Mm -hmm. That's a good run. Yeah. And that's a good arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. Allowed you to concentrate on the things you wanted to do. and That was it. And it was great because it was a seven-man practice. So it was big enough that um, uh, there was someone there that did things that I didn't necessarily want to do. And the, and the owner of the practice was uh, an excellent surgeon. He was not board certified, but he might as well have been, you know. So, um, uh, and I don't mind, you know, I like routine surgery is fine for me, but if it gets a little complex, I'd rather just refer it. So I just let him have all, all the surgery, which gave me more time to be able to do more of what I, you know, wanted to do. And, um, I was swamped. Uh, uh, it was, uh, holistic only. Uh, and it, it, you know, that was another thing, the word spread. And, um, uh, also, uh, veterinarians started seeing what I could do. And so I w became the person of last resort for weird things that nobody else knew what to do about. That's a place we end up a lot, isn't it? Yep. Yep. So, and you've been involved in organized veterinary medicine quite a bit, mm -hmm. AHVMA through the foundation. What's it been like to be an executive, to serve as an executive director? Oh, it's kind of, it's good news and bad news, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, because the, um, uh, it, it, you get a lot into the administrative part of things and it can get you kind of a little bit far away from 
practice. So I always did a little bit of relief work on the side. Um, uh, uh, it can get frustrating if you, um, especially you are the executive director, so the board decides what to do and then you do what the board says that you should be doing. And sometimes it seems like they are on the wrong track, but because you are the director, you know, you, you stick with the track and the charter and so on. That's, that's, the board thing. The other thing that can be frustrating is when the board can't make up their mind. And some boards are just like that. And they discuss the same things over and over. And it's sort of agreed that blah, blah, blah. But um, as the executive director, you can't follow through on it yet because they haven't finished you know, the final whatevers. But it can be really rewarding. The flip side is when you have a board and an organization that really is in tune with what you Want, believe in and what you want to do and helping to um, promote the board and to, to promote holistic medicine in general, integrative medicine, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, seeing people come around and uh, seeing conventional medicine start to accept you. Um, uh, I, that is, uh, you know, that's the big payoff. Yeah, a lot of changes since your oh yeah <laughs> since nineteen seventy. So <laughs> I, I'm dying to to know. I so how do you get from Sherman Oaks to this? Uh, you have to tell me about your home now. So okay, you're at the op- right. opposite end of the state. I, I need to know. <laughs> so I had this one client, and um, uh, she wanted me to come up here to Mount Shasta area because uh, uh, she was going to sell everything and move and come up here uh, because this is a very uh, holistic place. Um, Mount Shasta itself is a, is a energy vortex. Um, uh, the, Amer- the American Indians considered to be sacred place. St. Germain, who's a 1400 saint appeared on the mountain to somebody. So there's that group of people. Some people believe that the Lemurians are here. They're aliens that are here to help the world and they live in the volcano. You know, it's crystals. It's, 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 it's holistic to the extreme. Uh, so that's why she was here. And she kept on and kept on and would not leave me alone. You have to come here. You'll love it. You'll just. So I thought, well, just to shut her up, you know, she showed me pictures. It's beautiful up here. It's it's uh, there's tourism uh, year round. Um, there's something to do at all times. And I love the woods and I love, you know, so I thought, OK, I'll come up. And uh, and she said, okay, when you come, you have to talk to my real estate agent because she will know what you want and all this stuff. My grandparents had a cabin in the woods by a stream, uh, and I always wanted a place like that. All us grandkids would go there. And fortunately for us grandkids, they sold that place, you know, before when it caught to be too much from them, because otherwise we would have killed each other until whoever won got that cabin. So I always had this in the back of my mind. So when I came up and, you know, did the ob- obligatory tour, um, uh, she asked, you know, what what are you looking for? And and I described this cabin. And so um, so we looked at some things and they were not, they were more like vacation homes. There was one that was a huge A-frame, but it was this giant, uh, you know, kitchen plus living room and teensy weensy bedrooms. And my husband loved it and I hated it because I didn't want a teensy weensy bedroom. So she finally said, okay, there's one more 
place, and it's probably a little more like what you're looking for. It's not on the market yet, but um, uh, I've been talking to her about it, and I'll just see if it's okay with her if I show it. And that's the place that we bought. It was. It's just like my grandparents' type of thing. We live in the woods. We have 17 acres. Um, uh, it's not as cute of a cabin, but you know, we we fixed it up. We added on, and so on. So I, I, um, that was it. This was the place. <laughs> so that's, um, and it to you know, it's the place to retire to. So uh, it is. Um, that's how we got here. So how long have you owned it? Uh, 20 years. So were you making trips up there then just yes. vacation kind of things? And then, so how long have you been there full time? Um, let's see about, well, actually about 10 years because what happened was, um, uh, my husband retired and he moved up, um, you know, so I thought, well, I couldn't just stay living down in Southern California. So I actually commuted, um, uh, and I spit, well, I'd go four days down South and then three days up here. And, um, uh, so, um, uh, and it, you know, when you get used to it, the commute is not, um, uh, that bad. And it's funny once you start those long commutes, then you start meeting other people. I, there was one person who did an East West coast commute on, and every day, um, uh, and then someone else did something similar, um, uh, and did two weeks down and two weeks up and so on. So there's, there's a lot more people than I realized that do this long distance or were doing before COVID this long distance, uh, commute thing. Um, and, and actually I, uh, mine commute didn't seem nearly as bad as, as a lot of other people. How long did it take it? Um, well, it would, uh, so the, the, at the time, the closest um, airport that um, where I could really fly out of uh, was down in, uh, in Sacramento, which is a three and a half hour drive. So drive three and a half hours, and then the plane trip um, is um, about uh, forty minutes. Um, uh, and so you know, so basically about a five or six hour commute uh, total. Uh, now after. Um, there's actually an airport that's only an hour north of us in Oregon, uh, which which really expanded, and now they've got um, a, a commute direct to uh, Sacramento. So if I were doing it now, it would only take a couple of hours, but um, then it was like six hours, basically, practically a day. You got into a routine, though, I, guess, I imagine. Oh, yeah. 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 I had, you know, the place where I stay, the place uh, coming back, I'd always come back late at night and I'd drive um, halfway up. Um, there was a motel where I always stayed at and then drive the west of, rest of the way the next day. Um, so I, I checked a map just to get some orientation. So you guys are kind of adjacent to the Emerald Triangle then? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. Yeah, and it we looks are. Beautiful. Yeah, and we are. Uh, we're an hour south of Oregon, and Oregon doesn't have um, uh, doesn't have a state tax, uh, whereas California has a kind of a high state tax. So we buy. Uh, we uh, I bought my my new car last year in Oregon, and my husband just bought a new car this year in Oregon. So that's fun. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, and, and now. Go ahead. No, sorry. It's beautiful up there too. Um, 
so uh, so we vacation up there just as much as down here. Um, and now, because of uh, the wonders of the internet, we're both able to uh, to work for CIVT from home. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. Nice. So, so yeah, it would be really something if I had to commute to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> it would. So is internet service good enough at home that you can you can do your thing from there or do you have to to try uh, a little I bit? can sort of do my thing at home. Um at home we have uh satellite internet uh, because the cable company said it was going to be like forever before because we live in the middle of nowhere and they're not willing to to come out although the phone company did but they didn't um so uh, uh so satellite is okay uh to a point but if you have to do anything that has a lot of bandwidth like a zoom meeting or something it does not work well um so i also have a office in town in mount shasta that's um uh in a it's a room in a business that's, it's mainly one of those, um, mail, um, and printing combo type shops. Um, and, uh, uh, and I rent a room from them very reasonably, uh, partly because I help them with their dogs. So, (laughs) so they don't raise the rent on me. (laughs) Nice. So how long does it take you to get down, get to the office then? It's about a half hour. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not awful at all. Well, Nancy, this has been great. I've, I've uh, really enjoyed hearing your story and, and uh, all your travels as a kid and, and I really appreciate, I'm thankful for all that you've done personally for holistic medicine and for our association and for the foundation. And I just want to thank you for all your efforts. Well, thank you. It's always nice to be appreciated. I'll let you get, get, uh, get on with your commute back home and enjoy the rest <laughs> of your day. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.